Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. For the next 25 minutes, Jeff and Jake break down the most important changes in the newly released ADA Diabetes Guidelines. Don't forget to claim your CE after you listen in. Today, we are going to talk about the brand new ADA guidelines that are published every January in uh, the journal Diabetes Care. Um, I make a point of really kind of to, to bookmark uh, at least a day in late January where I can take a look at the guidelines and, and uh, take a look at some of the changes that have occurred and things along those lines. And of course, it is a gigantic undertaking because the, the, the guidelines themselves are hundreds of pages long. I try to focus on the stuff that's more about therapy, obviously, and to help me kind of navigate some of the changes that uh, came out in, in the 2023 guidelines. I'd like to uh, welcome my co-pilot and the guy who really keeps this uh, podcast running, uh, Jake Galdo from CEI. So welcome, Jake. Hey, Jeff. Really happy to be here. And uh, hopefully uh, you will find when you're listening that, that we can give you kind of an update. So maybe you don't have to kind of read all the guidelines because sometimes it can be a, a pretty onerous task to, task to do so. There are some uh, several large changes uh, in the 2023 guidelines compared to the 2022 guidelines. And, uh, you know, I think they've made some uh, recommendations that definitely are going to impact uh, whether you're a pharmacist dealing with these patients in the community setting or whether you're a provider or, or a primary care person uh, dealing with them as well. So we're just going to take it one at a time. Uh, as you guys know, uh, you know, this is the ADA guidelines. I really don't want to step into the landmine of, you know, which guideline is best for diabetes because it seems like every major medical society has at least, you know, one guideline for diabetes. And, you know, I, I and most of the primary care people I know tend to use ADA, but again, I'm not trying to, to denigrate this over the, you know, ACE guidelines or the American College of Physician guidelines. It's just the one I tend to use. So we're going to focus on some of the big changes. And the first big change we're going to talk about is uh, an update on the prevention and delay of type 2 diabetes. And so people who basically are at high risk or have so-called pre-diabetes, what's, what's a way we can help prevent the development of diabetes? And they, they do update this section uh, talking about, you know, some go- uh, lifestyle changes to, to really uh, attack this. And, and uh, for once, I think they actually have an actual goal that they're setting for as far as weight loss, which I thought was kind of nice. So the guideline itself really uh, talks a little bit about, you know, several studies, including the DPP study, the Diabetes Prevention Program, and some other ones, including the Finnish Diabetes Prevention Study and, and a couple of others. And all these studies you know, not to go into them in detail, basically show that lifestyle behavioral modification can be very effective in preventing or delaying the development of type 2 diabetes. And of course, other improving other cardiometabolic uh, markers, such as blood pressure and lipids. They note that the DPP study in particular found that intensive lifestyle uh, intervention can reduce incident type 2 diabetes by up to to 60% over three years. And you don't have to lose, you know, a million pounds to do that. And in fact, they actually note that that, uh, in that study, uh, that it was basically a minimum of 7% weight loss of total weight loss with 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity per week, such as brisk walking. And so again, you know, patients, you know, who are, are overweight or obese, you don't need to, you know, say, look, you know, you're gonna have to lose 20% of your body weight. It, you know, 7% was chosen because it's probably achievable in most patients and something they can probably maintain, uh, you know, to help lessen the risk of diabetes. So um, they note that, that if at all possible, try to achieve a 7% weight loss within uh, six months of, of initiating lifestyle modification and a recommended pace of about one to two pounds per week. And, and they also note that uh, metformin might uh, have some role. And again, this isn't new. We've, we've known for a while that, that metformin may delay the progression of developing type 2 diabetes, uh, particularly in those patients age 25 to 59 who have a high BMI. Now, I personally don't see a lot of metformin prescribed for this purpose. Uh, the DPP study did find that there was some benefit, but found the benefit was about equal to intensive lifestyle modification. So again, if you have someone who could 
could not maintain intensive lifestyle modifications, uh, early use of metformin may be beneficial. Now, you know, the, the one of the things they note, and, and I've recommended uh, to my physicians for, for years now, is, is for not forgetting B12 deficiency, which is uh, uh, can occur in metformin-treated patients, and, uh, um, you know, keeping an eye on B12 levels perhaps once yearly. I know that uh, many of my primary care docs have mentioned that they have a difficulty getting that approved by insurance to draw that level, um, but I think it's probably worth checking again in patients who are, who are long-term. And of course, they don't mention it in these guidelines, but with uh, the studies probably coming out this year, looking at uh, the GOP, GIP drugs or GOP drugs by themselves for, for obesity, one wonders if, uh, uh, you know, they, uh, in addition to just being a, 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 um, approved by uh, the FDA for obesity, you may see these drugs all approved for pre-diabetes patients as well, because with the, you know, 15 to 20% weight loss, you see with, with many of these medications, obviously the, the, the theory would be that would dramatically decrease your progression to type 2 diabetes. So Jake, what do you think about this, this uh, part of the guideline? I think it's really interesting. So, so you know, what you're digging into is, is Section 3, essentially, within our guidelines, mm-hmm. uh, which is the prevention or delay of type 2 diabetes and associated com- comorbidities. And I think it's incredibly important to realize that, you know, back in the day, we would say diabetes is cardiovascular disease. We're now seeing where diabetes is mental health disease. It is, um, you know, infectious disease. It's a bunch of different things. And so, when we think of a person with diabetes, it's not a person with, with it's not the, the diabetic person, it's a person with diabetes and these other comorbidities. Sorry. We really need to address all of them. And, and your overarching point that you've kind of pointed out, which I think is incredibly important, is the role of education with, you know, you, you talk about DPP uh, in regards to the trial and the studies. I think about DPP as in diabetes prevention and programs, the CDC endorsed uh, a training program for uh, patients with prediabetes to prevent their, their diabetes from progressing. Uh, that, that program can be delivered by a variety of healthcare providers, including uh, community pharmacists. It's accredited by the CDC, and there's, there's some really good you know, financial models to support that. Parallel to that, we also have things like DSME, and I know that they sometimes add more S's in there when they, they talk about it, but diabetes self-management education. Right. Um, and that's, again, another way to, to engage patients in their care. But what I think is, is really fascinating in the long run, like taking a step back, looking at a higher level, is a lot of this is touching upon social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about this when we kind of get into to section nine, or in fact, I'm, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, sneak ahead, so, so spoiler, uh, in, in section nine, uh, where it's pharmacologic approach to glycemic treatment, recommendation 9.4a was added to state that healthy lifestyle behaviors diabetes self-management education, avoidance of clinical inertia, and social determinants of health should be considered in the glucose lowering management of type 2 diabetes. So I, I highlight that, even though it's jumping ahead, because it's, it's circling back to everything that you're saying is that the care of a person with diabetes is not just when they have diabetes, it is their entire disease journey, and it's also not limited to just pharmacologic management. And that's where we really think about the role of community health workers and others. The guidelines actually call out community health workers, which I think is really fascinating, in, in addressing these social determinants of health and other non-pharmacologic factors affecting patient care. Right. And again, that, that goes to my DPP diabetes prevention program, not your DPP uh, trial that you've been talking about. Right. No, I agree with that entirely. And, and again, I think I think pharmacists in the community, again, if we give them the time to do it, they certainly have the tools to to help, you know, lead the charge when it comes to identifying these patients, helping them with their lifestyle 
modifications. Several of my, my fellow faculty at Drake are lifestyle coaches, and this is some of the stuff they can really, really help with uh, as far as you know, implementing and starting lifestyle changes. So I totally agree. Parallel to that a little bit, and we won't spend a lot of time talking about it, I, I did want to mention vaccines because, of course, that's for reasons I'm, I'm not entirely sure of it. It's become very controversial recently. Um, so just just reminding uh, the audience that, that you know, patients with diabetes are at high risk and, and they know that patients over age 65, you know, whether or not they have diabetes should, of course, receive a, a pneumococcal vaccine, one dose of a PCV 15 or 20. I know in my health system, we've pretty much just gone to, to, to uh, PCD 20 because then you don't need to follow up with, with the PPS uh, 23. So we've pretty much gone to, to PCD 20, and I suspect many other healthcare systems have as well. Uh, they note that if patients are age 1964, they should again kind of receive that same kind of regimen. They note that patients who are at risk should receive COVID vaccines. And again, given the, the change that's occurring and the, you know, the, 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 the rise of the bivalent vaccine, of course, these guidelines were written long before any of that occurred. So they basically just say in the guidelines, look, follow what CDC says, follow with AAC. CIP says, and, and basically, you know, follow those guidelines and keep in mind that diabetic patients are at high risk for progression of hospitalization and death with COVID, even now, even with, with all the, you know, the, the, the different supposedly less virulent variants out there that you have to be vigilant about that. So, so Jake, I, I know you're, a, as I am a very big vaccine pro proponent, anything you want to comment on that? I think the, the one aspect about vaccines is that it can be incredibly overwhelming. You know, I'm, I'm in my mid-30s. I have asthma. I'm indicated for PZV20, and I had to reach out to my prescriber to get the prescription to then go get it at the pharmacy. Right. Um, so I think one of the things that we can think about is empowering patients to know it. And, and anytime I think about working with persons with diabetes, you, you have to prioritize. Right. It's one thing at a time. So, you know, let's pick some, some vaccine low period, June, and say this is, this is our PZV20 campaign. So every June of every year, we're going to reach out to all the patients indicated for PCD20, those with diabetes, those with asthma, and really just kind of focus on that. So I think uh, from a vaccine perspective, it's not a season, uh, but we can uh, align with, with reaffirming what vaccines are indicated and and focus in operations to, to execute. Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. And something I hadn't thought of is, you know, rather than try and hammer people in November with, okay, well, on your way out from your doctor's appointment, be sure and get your COVID, flu, and pneumovax vaccine all in one shot. And yeah, I, I suspect for the average patient that, that that's got to be pretty overwhelming. So I like I like that idea a lot. So, you know, target some of these vaccines, even shingles vaccine, I suppose, you know, in, in, in the summer where we're not getting a whole lot of other vaccines. I think it's a really good idea. So then we move on to the next uh, goal and uh, the next goal is, is a bit of a sea change. I mean, I think everyone has been seeing this coming uh, based on the, the rising data of continuous glucose monitoring. And, and certainly, uh, I've seen more and more patients who are on the monitors for continuous blood glucose monitoring. And, and the technology never fails to amaze me that, that you know, how far we've come in, in being able to, to do this. And so, uh, um, you know, the, the, the new 2023 guidelines, I think, have really codified much clearer, much more clearly, you know, the fact that, that most patients, uh, especially type one patients, but even I think many, many type two uh, patients should be considered for continuous blood glucose monitoring. And they've added basically a whole new segment of glycemic control goals, uh, basically associated on that. And they note that with most of these monitors, and of course, you know, there, there are several name brand monitors that are that are pretty popular. Uh, they note that, you know, the, the data that you get with them uh, can really help empower patients as well as providers and, and seeing what's going on. And, you know, uh, you know, you can get all sorts of information in these reports about 
about how, you know, what percentage of time they were high or very high or low or very low, what time percentage they were in target, uh, what was their average glucose, um, you know, and, and how much variability was it, what did they have, did they have a whole bunch of big swings, that's always been the problem with, with like hemoglobin A1Cs, if you have someone who has a lot of lows and a lot of highs, that's going to kind of even out in their hemoglobin A1C, and they can even take a look at 24 hour spaces and say, well, you know, gee, you know, you were super low in the middle of the night, but then you were super high at, in, in the afternoon. And just, you know, just a wealth of information that is available, you know, really at the push of a button on an app on a smartphone, or can be sent to your provider. So I mean, you know, and, and the, the guidelines really go in and note that, you know, with that kind of array of information at the patient providers, you know, disposal, they can really make some important changes in these patients. So they basically note that, you know, in patients who can afford it, the majority of patients probably should get continuous glucose monitoring if, if they're regularly checking their blood sugars. And they note that with that, uh, there's a new goal. So in addition to preprandial blood sugars, postprandial blood sugars, and hemoglobin A1C, now time and range is now a, a, a goal of a glycemic goal of ADA. And they want people in time and range. So basically in that in that range of, of uh, you know, either 70 to 130 in the morning or 70 to 180, which is kind of the target at this point, um, is, is going to be uh, with 70%. So to be time and range of 70%, those uh, uh, pharmacists listening to my voice who used to be anticoagulation pharmacists are probably having flashbacks to, to when we had everybody on warfarin and you know the the, the time and goal was also 70 percent in, in in many of those studies so uh but that's kind of what the new guidelines say is that is that you know we should try and keep people at least and of course if we could get people 100 percent in goal range that's that's always the goal we want to shoot for but at least 70 percent in range they know that that data has shown a very strong correlation between time and range and hemoglobin a1c and if patients can target that that goal of 70 percent it actually aligns with the hemoglobin a1c of about seven percent which of course is is is, is the goal so I, you know again that you uh, they note that that this really is a sea change in 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 how we we monitor patients with diabetes and that this is a valuable tool and and even though it's one more you know kind of data point that i suspect a lot of primary care providers may be kind of groaning about because uh, you know it's like you know here's one more marker that i'm going to be graded on basically um I, you know I, I think the data is pretty strong that that uh, this can really be a valuable tool and can really let you know when patients are having lows and highs that you really can't capture any other way so jake your thoughts about that so i think you know what i love about this is it's, it's taking technology and helping us augment care in a brand new way it's assessing patients uh 24 7 it's getting really great information the the biggest beef i have is is one getting the supplies so there's a there's a lot to be said about the the reimbursement to pharmacies and being able to get these products in patients hands right but if we table that aspect the other the other part is just general technology right and and literacy of technology and i feel like we sometimes don't fully understand the breadth of the diversity of our our great united states and we we fail to understand how people can navigate some of these things I will again emphasize this is a huge area for the role of the community health worker. Right. Uh, it was called out in the, the ADA guidelines. These are the individuals that live in the communities, go to the homes, and help the patients navigate things. And I think that the, the, the integration of a CHW into a continuous glucose monitoring program is really, really powerful because that CHW can help the person navigate the technology and then transmit this information to the other healthcare providers to then start to make those interventions. So I think effective use of this in all persons is going to evolve, involve addressing the social determinants of health, which is you know medication access or, or medical care access and just general understanding of these products. You know, a lot of the patients that we sometimes see 
don't have uh, a computer. They don't have right, internet. And so we're talking yeah. about, can we download this stuff and, and, and deliver it to our prescribers? Well, probably not. So how can we use CHWs embedded in communities or the pharmacies to help kind of bridge that gap? So again, really love this idea, but I think that the business model around effective implementation uh, is really going to be dependent upon integration of CHWs and addressing all persons, not just uh, the tech savvy ones. Right. I agree. And yeah, as always, the devil's in the details. You know, again, I think for a lot of our listeners, it, it's probably incomprehensible to them that, that there's a significant number of people who don't have a smartphone, they don't have regular access to the internet. And, you know, you know, access to the internet has become as as integral to, to the American experience as not having access to indoor plumbing or not having access to electricity. So it's, you know, yeah, I mean, there's a significant number of people around uh, out there who don't have that. And, and unfortunately, those patients are going to be at the highest risk, of course, right, of, 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 of having diabetes and how do we access that. So I like that a lot. Uh, we are going to talk about how do we do, you know, get people in, in that time to range. Obviously, we're going to use glycemic treatment and there's some updates on that as well. We're going to talk about that as soon as we hear from our sponsor, CE Impact. Hi, this is Jen Moulton, founder of CE Impact. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review. We're growing and the more followers and ratings we have, the more great content we can provide. We appreciate your support to help you connect your learning to practice. So I'm back with uh, my friend Jake Galdo, um, who's from CE Impact, also a community pharmacist and an, and an expert in a lot of things, talking a little bit about uh, the new 2023 ADA guidelines for the treatment of diabetes. And we're talking a little bit now about glycemic treatment. There's not been, uh, you know, again, a big sea change uh, um, in, in uh, treatment that hasn't already kind of reflected what's happened in the last five or 10 years. But the guidelines do note a couple of changes that I think are, are worth mentioning. Uh, one of the biggies is, is the use of the GLP-1 receptor drugs uh, for or in place of I should say basal insulin in type 2 diabetics and um, you know I think you know we've always kind of thought in patients with, with super duper high uh, hemoglobin A1Cs even on metformin or, or another you know single antihyperglycemic agent that oh, we're gonna have to go right to insulin in these patients to get good blood sugar control and the, the guidelines are updated to note that there's actually been several studies now that have found that GLP-1 drugs have a have, have an as good or perhaps better control of blood sugars than basal insulin and and uh, that's, that's, you know, again, I think surprising to many healthcare providers, because we've always kind of been taught that insulin is kind of the final word in getting people's blood sugars under control. And the GLP-1 drugs have been shown to do at least as good, if not better. And of course, they, uh, the benefits of that, besides the benefits across the board that GLP-1 drugs have, is that there's much lower risk of hypoglycemia. Um, obviously, there's improvement in body weight, because I mean, almost everybody who gets started on insulin gains weight. And so they, there's actually weight control um, in, in patients with the GLP-1 drugs. But of course, the increased risk of gastrointestinal side effects. So the guidelines come right out and say that GOP-1 drugs are now the preferred option in patients who require the potency of an injectable for glucose control. So a bit of a change there. Um, I think from a from a, a, a pharmacy, pharmacy perspective, of course, it's going to have to do with access. Uh, you can't get a lot of these medications for reasons that have nothing to do with diabetes, but that's a whole other game changer to talk about. Um, and so I, I think, you know, affordability and access is going to be huge for this, but, but a, a, again, a bit of a SID change and certainly one that I'm going to take some time to have to kind of remember in, in my patients in the hospital. So um, the, they also update some of the statin guidelines and, and, and use of statins in patients with, with diabetes. And they note that we, you know, of course, should be shooting for a goal of less than 70 in most of these patients. Which you know, again, the pendulum's kind of swung back to actually caring about what LDLs are. I mean, we went kind of a, a 10 year, 12 year space there, where it didn't really matter what your LDL is. We just you looked at your risk, and if you're at risk, you just need to be on on a statin. 
they now say we need to target LDLs less than 70 uh, in patients uh, for primary prevention and in patients who have a known cardiovascular disease that target LDL less than 55. And so again, I think we're going to kind of find ourselves back where we were in, in the late 90s and early 2000s, where we, we might even have lipid clinics, again, for, for patients with diabetes, you know, using uh, not only statins, but things like the PCSK9 drugs. I mean, anybody can afford them again uh, for, for uh, getting people to target. I have to admit, I'm a bit of a nihilist when it comes to to the to the PCSK9 drugs just because you know I think there's been some thought that they fix the numbers but do they actually improve cardiovascular outcomes and and yes there's been a couple of beneficial studies but but not near the, the benefit that statins have so you know um, I, you know again I totally understand the need to kind of do that and try and target things but I think we have to kind of take some care about that um, they also talk a lot about uh, you know SGL2 drugs and uh, you know you know as I've been telling my students you know you know it doesn't seem like there's a, a patient population of the STL2 drugs don't benefit really. And, and so they note that SCL2 drugs should be first line in patients who have concomitant either HEF-REF or HEF-PEF. And again, there is at least one study now that shows that uh, in patients with preserved ejection fraction heart failure, that this class of drugs seem to be just as effective and, and, and have really been the first drug that we've ever had that seems to seems to benefit those patients. Um, they, they go into some detail talking about the benefit of these drugs in patients with chronic kidney disease. Um, and and uh, they, even just in the last few weeks, there's been a couple of new studies that have looked at that as well. They note that that the initiation of these drugs can be considered at, at estimated GFRs of, of greater than, than only 20. So that's kind of nice, as well as patients who have micro to macro albuminuria. So again, there are no big changes in the SGL2 uh, um, uh, recommendations, just noting that they are, are, are very strongly recommending these patients who will find a concomitant benefit. They then talk a little bit about uh, the mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, and I think they've kind of beefed up their recommendation in patients who have diabetes and chronic kidney disease and note that they are, are recommended in, in, uh, in additive fashion, not as alternatives, but in additive fashion to ACEs, angiotensin receptor blockers, and perhaps even SGL2 drugs in, in uh, um, further decreasing the risk of cardiovascular disease and prevention of coronary uh, or chronic kidney disease worsening. Uh, um, of course, prospironolactone is the cheapest one and the one almost everybody's on. And of course, because it's generic, nobody's really studied it in the in this population. So uh, the, the guidelines go into some detail talking about uh, phenarinone, which is, is a, a derivative of spironolactone and has uh, less chance of, of uh, um, but not a zero chance of hyperkalemia and much less chance of gynecomastia. Uh, they note that, that there's been a couple of studies now, uh, from, in, in particular the Figaro uh, uh, series of studies that have, have shown that adding a, uh, an immineral corticoid receptor antagonist to these patients uh, uh, seems to improve, uh, um, uh, decrease the risk of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, stroke, and hospitalization for heart failure kind of across the board, though it seems that most of this was driven by a decrease in heart failure exacerbations. So again, you know, uh, is that the hardest outcome you could use? Probably not. But they also found that, that these drugs also um, um, help stabilize decline of, of EGFR as well. And so there seems to be some benefit as far as chronic kidney disease. Of course, as you might imagine, the risk of, of uh, side effects they found was, was primarily from, from uh, hyperkalemia. Um, they've actually found 10 per percent of patients in the Figaro study actually had hyperkalemia compared to 5.3% of patients in the placebo arm, but they know only a very small number of those patients actually stopped the drug due to hyperkalemia. So, um, you know, the problem, of course, is this medication is quite expensive. I'm not sure I've ever even seen it dispensed or used in patients who come into the hospital, but, but uh, you know, again, it's worth noting that, it, that in, a, in a patient who is, is on maximal therapy and perhaps seeing worsening of their albuminuria, that it might be worth considering a trial of, of this medication just while watching their potassium very closely. 
closely. So, uh, Jake, a lot of new information. What's your take on some of this stuff? I think the biggest thing here is that it's all about the patient's comorbid conditions. Um, so we no longer just have this little, like, if-then statement, you know, if, if you fail uh, metformin, then start this next drug. And instead, it's what are the conditions that the patient has and how do we get the drug of choice that's going to address cardiovascular outcomes because they've had those CVOT uh, uh, data to support uh, improving cardiovascular outcomes, what are they doing for heart failure, um, and so forth. So I think the, the big takeaway here is that it's no longer one size fits all, and it very much is comorbid driven. And <clears throat> excuse me, I think the, the big aspect is just, just identifying the patient and navigating through their insurance. We do run the risk of, of having some medications maybe not be covered by the payers, um, but I think the payers are starting to look at these guidelines and recognizing that metformin is no longer the gold, gold standard, and, and it's sometimes important to, to provide other drugs like a GLP-1 as first line. The other barrier that we're really running into are our off-label use of GLP-1s for obesity and then yeah. causing drug shortages and how that's affecting patients. You know, there's no real good pathway to overcome that. You know, it, it's kind of scary in the sense that pharmacists are now having to be police again right. and get an ICD-10 or a diagnosis code on prescriptions for GLT-1s to make sure it's not off-label. Otherwise, the, the audit can occur and the pharmacist can lose money. Right. So I think, you know, one of the best things we can do is get our prescribers to, to write ICD-10s on their, their prescriptions, send them over to the pharmacist, and pharmacists document that so that way we do have some alignment of uh, the medications that we're using. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. And again, we should probably do an entire entire game changer on that. But I mean, it's 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 staggering to me. The first, the the way that social media is being used to tell patients how to get around all that, right? And the second is the you know the stories you hear from community pharmacists who are just getting totally pummeled by patients, you know, demanding this medication and demanding it for twenty five dollars and 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 all this ridiculousness. And you know, I, I you know having and being an old man, I remember. Remember when FenFen came out and the exact same thing happened. You couldn't keep it on the shelves, and and you know it, you know people were demanding it for for everything and all that. So like I said, we'll, we'll we'll tackle that as a game changer down the road. Other thoughts you have about the glycemic uh, treatment updates? I think the big thing is just you know pay attention to the new drugs. They actually have some really good data for their use, and that sometimes it is important to get that patient on the the brand name medication. Right. Um, so much data is is really looking at cardiovascular outcomes and helping mitigate those negative effects and and it's important to to get the drugs on the right or get the patients on the right therapy um yeah nothing nothing too too different from what you were saying other than uh, the guidelines keep evolving they keep changing but it definitely is all about the, the other things happening with that patient's life Absolutely. And like I said, the, the big one of all those that I've got to kind of wrap my head around is, you know, we're going to send somebody home with, with uh, you know, trying to get better glycemic control. Can we set them up in an inpatient setting to be put on a GLP-1 drug? We're always kind of reluctant to do that in, in an inpatient setting because, of course, you know, will they be, not be able to afford it when, when they get out in, in the real world and stuff? But but I think that's, you know, we've got to, be, we've got to think about that and kind of get a little bit better about saying, you know, that these drugs are just as good as Glargine 
and have many other advantages and then we're gonna have to work on that so well thanks jake for uh your your insight i really appreciate it as always and i'm sure we'll have you on many other times in the future so thanks thanks for joining and, and giving us your information thanks for having me jeff always happy to talk about diabetes Sure. So, well, that's it for this uh, episode of Game Changers. My new EP comes out February 7th called Opaic. A lot of house music, a lot of uh, new disco. Um, you can get it wherever you get your um, uh, music and on all platforms. Uh, take a listen, see what you think, and uh, let me know what you think. Uh, it's pretty easy to get a hold of me. So we will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you next week. That's it for this week's episode of Game Changers. CE Impact members, don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. If you aren't a member, join us at ceimpact.com. We'll talk to you next week for Game Changers Clinical Conversations.